Welcome, dear friends and gentle listeners, to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we're going to have the first of a series of interviews that we're doing on the law and the legal profession. We'd like to bring you information about how to work with the law, how to understand the law, how to find a lawyer, how to understand what lawyers do. And our guest today is author and lawyer John Allison. John's written two books, one's called Transforming the Law, no, Transforming the Practice of Law, beg your pardon, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession. His other book, Choosing Your Lawyer, an insider's practical guide to making a really good choice. So stay tuned. This is going to be an interesting and educational interview. I'm very much looking forward to it. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. I've been talking on this program for almost 10 years now about the income inequality that's been going on, the socioeconomic stratification that's going on in our country. It's disturbing. It's been disturbing for a long time. Finally, because of the coming presidential election, it's getting some attention in the media. Bernie Sanders is the one who's been talking about it the most. If you listen into one of his speeches, you'll be here quite a bit about income inequality. Many of the things he's saying, I'm pleased to say, we've been saying on this program, as I said, for close to 10 years. There's more news. It's much worse. The consequences of this stratification, is, are, they're much worse than I thought, than any of us thought. The new research released on Friday contains jarring numbers. Looking at the extreme ends of the income spectrum, Economists at the famous Brookings Institute, that many of you have heard of, found that for men born in 1920, there was a six-year difference in life expectancy between the top 10% of earners and the bottom 10%. All right? If you were born around 1920, you had a six-year difference in life expectancy. Here's the news. For men born in 1950, the difference had more than doubled to 14 years. Folks, this is a dramatic number. This is a real number. This isn't something made up by the government to make you think that many people are employed when they're not, and you're really wondering, is it 20% unemployment, and they're telling us five, and we don't really have a way of knowing. This is the Brookings Institute. This is information that can be checked up and double-checked up on. I believe it's real information, and they're telling us that for men born around 1950, the difference between the upper 10% of wage earners and the lower 10% is a startlingly dramatic 14 years. For women, the gap grew to 13 years from 4.7 years back in, if you were born in 1920. This, it's, a huge, it's a huge spreading out. I'm, I'm, I hardly know what to say. I hope you all take it very seriously. I hope we all take it very seriously and put our heads together, be thinking about the implications of a 14-year spread in life expectancy based on how much money you make. 
John, John Allison is sitting in front of me shaking his head. John, you can, you can chime in here. What, what, what's your head saying? Well, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. That's, that's the word. So what we're learning is life expectancy is different if you make a different amount of money. Your life itself is different if you make a different amount of money. Your education is different. The jobs you have, the people you associate with, where you live, all based on how much money you make. And for some of us, that, that rankles the spirit. It, it brings up deep and troubling questions. How about you all who are listening to this? How does it sound to you? How does it sound to you to hear that people who make significantly less live, get to live on this planet a very significantly less amount of time? 14 years is a real chunk of time. If it was 1.3 years or six months or something, you might be able to say, I better stop. I think I'm getting carried away here, so I'm going to move on to another topic. But folks, let's come back to this topic again. Some while ago, I had Bruce Lipton on this program. You might remember, those of you who listened. And you can find it on the archive on mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. You can find the interview with Bruce Lipton. His book was called Biology of Belief. What Bruce, who started cloning as a scientist, Back in 1969, he was a pioneer cloner. What Bruce is telling us is that he is researching ways to focus our mind in order to make changes in our genetic structure internally. Yes, you heard that right. He's talking about using part of us, namely the mind, to make structural changes in another part of us that we call the body. And a lot of people thought, well, you know, that's really way out. I mean, that's far out or maybe very advanced, but we're on the edge. Well, now I bring you from the Yale School of Public Health a study. People who held the most positive views on aging were the least likely to develop changes associated with Alzheimer's disease. By contrast, autopsies conducted through the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging determined that the brains of people who had felt the most pessimistic about growing older in the decades before they died developed higher concentrations of Alzheimer's-related plaques and tangles upon autopsy. In other words... Having a positive attitude towards aging actually eases stress and contributes that the stresses that contribute to Alzheimer's disease. So in a way, this is the first little tingle of evidence for what Lipton was saying, right? Their attitude about what aging was like affected whether they got a physical disease that we call Alzheimer's. And it's also a very strong argument for what has been called at times the power of positive thinking. It's sometimes it's been debunked in that way. Oh, it's the power of positive thinking. But as it turns out, there's more and more evidence that thinking positive has a positive physiological effect on us. Fascinating stuff. 
from a common sense point of view, I think it's a lot more fun to walk around thinking positively than thinking pessimistically. But not everybody agrees with that. I think there are pessimists who think they're having a lot of fun being pessimistic, and it's a kind of, uh, what would you call it, uh, curmudgeonly is the word that you use for that, or contrarian. They enjoy being contrarians. So maybe we should stop with news and notes there, because I see we've already done enough minutes of it, and move on to today's interview with John Allison. I told you before, I'll say it again, one of his books is Transforming the Practice of Law, subtitle, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession. We're going to want to hear about the reclaiming the soul. His other book, Choosing Your Lawyer, an, insided, an insider's practical guide to making a really good choice. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, John. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to participate in your program. Since you're right here today, I'd like to begin by just talking a little bit about your career in the law. Uh, you were a lawyer in private practice. Yes. You also worked for a Fortune 500 company, Triple M, I believe. Uh, 3M company, yes. You, uh, you were an assistant general counsel on the office of the general counsel management committee of what? Of 3M Company. Of the 3M Company. Yes. Okay. And um, you recently founded something called the Coach for Lawyers. What is the Coach for Lawyers? It's a consulting firm, Richard, that offers coaching services for individual lawyers and law practice consulting services for law firms. You've been a lawyer, practicing lawyer, for 43 years. Yes, I have. What got you to write this book particularly about reclaiming the soul of the legal profession. Richard, I was thinking about the changes in the legal profession over the last 40 years, and many lawyers who started practicing when I did, I started practicing in 1969, the lawyers of that vintage, of our vintage, have noticed changes starting in the late 1970s going into the 80s, uh, where the law became, the practice of law became more uh, highly competitive, uh, there's a lot, a lot of uh, literature about incivility among lawyers, nastiness uh, within the legal profession, and disillusionment and uh, distress and, and, and general disappointment with the decision that people made to become lawyers. Uh, and the, uh, the practice of law has become less uh, uh, congenial over the past 40 years. I came upon two data points that I think that inspired this book. One is that there was a John Hopkins study back in the late, 1990, uh, late 1990s studying stress among different occupations and occupational groups. And the finding of this peer-reviewed study, it was published in the, in the literature uh, by these Johns Hopkins researchers, uh, uh, indicated a couple of startling things. One was that lawyers are 3.6 times more likely than members of the general population to suffer from clinical depression, which is a diagnosable mental condition. It's a serious illness. It's not just feeling down or feeling, you know, having the blues, that type of thing. It, it's, a, it's a mental illness. And uh, 3.6 times higher rate among lawyers than non-lawyers. The other striking thing is that comparing lawyers to other professions, physicians, uh, healthcare workers, clergy, uh, economists, uh, social service workers, 
uh, found that the rate of uh, depression among those occupational groups was even less than the rate among the general population. And so uh, putting some numbers together and doing a little bit of analysis indicated that lawyers are more than five times more likely than members of other professions to suffer from depression. So that, that caught my attention. The other thing that caught my attention were a couple of Pew Research studies, surveys, that were done, uh, the most recent one was done in t uh, 2013, where people were asked to rate the, their attitude about 10 different uh, professional groups. And in the most recent survey in 2013, lawyers came in last place. Only 18% of the people participating in the survey expressed the view that lawyers contribute a lot to the well-being of society. An astonishing 34% concluded that lawyers contribute little or nothing to the well-being of society, which was the largest negative result among the 10 occupational professional groups that were included in the study. And so these are striking. So lawyers are basically, and there's other literature that I came across doing the research for this book that suggests that 25% of the lawyers are miserable by various measures whether it's depression, um, uh, a suicide rate that's almost twice the suicide rate among the general population, alcoholism, the rate is double among lawyers. Alcoholism, and the rate is double, double among the general population? Yes. That lawyers are, t are, are twice as likely to suffer from alcoholism than members of the general population. So do we think that uh, depressive, alcoholic, suicidal people are becoming lawyers, or do we think that uh, when you in, are in that profession for a while, you drift towards one of those three maladies? Well, let me answer that question by giving a little bit of background. I, I wondered why this was happening, because I, frankly... For 43 years, I enjoyed the practice of law. I, I found a lot of satisfaction, fulfillment uh, in the practice. The uh, legal profession, after all, is the keeper of our system of justice, which is, uh, has some unique qualities, unique positive qualities among judicial systems in the world. We have um, constitutional rights that are protected by the legal profession. We have a society that's governed by the rule of law so that we're not subject to the whim of whoever might be in power. And all of this happens or is possible because of the contribution that lawyers make to society. Would you please just repeat that one uh, very important comment about the rule of law and how it uh, contrasts to the whims of dictators, for example? Just reading the news, we can see uh, autocrats, dictators... Um, countries that are run by, you know, without regard to individual rights, individual liberties. Uh, our, our system is, is pretty unique in uh, world governments uh, in, the history of, in the history of nations in the world. We have a free speech, the right of free speech. We have the right to exercise the religion of our choice. We have the right to associate with the people that we want to associate with. The government can't come in and, and seize us or arrest us or take our property without probable cause, without a search warrant, without an arrest warrant. These are protections critical to the maintenance of a free and open democratic society. Lawyers protect that, those rights. Um, they protect us against decisions and actions by government agencies or government authorities that are contrary to the Constitution. They protect us from mob rule as well as from autocratic rule. 
and the legal profession plays a critical role in, in making all this possible. So we, we have a society that's based on the rule of law, not based on the whim of whoever might be in power. And that's a, uh, a, a precious gift that was handed down to us uh, by our founding fathers, uh, the, four, the, uh, uh, the, the people who organized our form of government. I, I asked you to, to go back to that, and thank yeah. you for, for elaborating on that, yeah. because being born in this country, you were, I was, I yes. know Michael sitting here was, and living our entire lives in this country, I think it's difficult for us, tell me how you feel about it, I'll speak for myself, it's difficult for me, I can do it, but it's difficult for me to comprehend a living situation where some man can point a finger at you and you're dead the next day. That's how it is in a dictatorship or in, in, in certain tyrannies. They have that much power. That's how it was in the Roman Empire, and that's how it, it is in many countries in the world to this day. But it's hard to conceive of that for me because that's not the world that I've lived in where a man can just point a finger and you're literally dead the next day or the next week. And that's what you, when you say that we're protected by due process instead of the whim. That's the whim you're talking about, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, exactly. And I think that all we have to do is open up the newspaper to see examples all over the world of millions and millions of people living under conditions like that, having to run for their lives to escape dictators, uh, escape people who, as you say, can point the finger at somebody and they're dead. Yes, and, and the lines that we see in the paper are dramatic where they're risking their lives. We see dead children on the beaches yes. and so on. They're doing anything they can to be away from living in a situation where a person at, the, at their whim can change your entire life. That's so intolerable that people risk their lives to get away from it. Now back to the law profession here it is to protect us from that, those whims, from those possible whims. It's to keep our constitution functioning. Exactly. We are blessed, in my opinion, to live in a constitutional democracy that is governed by the rule of law. Lawyers make that possible. Lawyers protect us. They enforce our constitutional rights. They hold uh, people or organizations accountable for their wrongdoing through our court system. We have an impartial judiciary, unlike some countries where the courts are, uh, the judges are inquisitors, essentially, and basically... Uh, prosecute a case, investigate a case, and make a decision, which is a dangerous blend of functions in determining the outcome of a case or determining guilt or innocence or whether somebody goes to prison. We have, uh, there's one country in particular that I, from my time at 3M, we had some cases down there where the lawyers would literally slip affidavits and briefs and so forth under the judge's door and there never was a, a hearing where you could confront uh, the people who were testifying against you or who were accusing you of a crime. It was all done in secret. And so we are blessed to live in this country, and, and we, need to, we need to preserve the liberties that we uh, have inherited. And the lawyers, a legal profession, is meant to preserve those liberties. Exactly. And your research and this research that you told us about that was done in 1999 indicates that this very profession, this, this group of people who protect us, are suffering from inordinate amounts of depression, alcoholism, and suicidality. Exactly. And it's gotten worse, Richard, since the late 1990s when that study was done. And why is it getting worse, John? That's why I wrote this book, because I spent two years doing the research that 
led to uh, this book, Transforming the Practice of Law, and a number of things happened. In 1969, let me just back up a minute. The American Bar Association is a voluntary association of lawyers. It's a national professional organization, kind of like the American Medical Association. It, just, it doesn't have any disciplinary or regulatory responsibilities or authority over lawyers. Uh, those issues are handled by individual state bar associations or state supreme courts. But the American Bar Association has a tremendous amount of influence in developing model standards of ethical behavior and model rules of professional conduct. And in 1969, the American Bar Association adopted a new set of model ethical rules, and included in that was a uh, specific duty of zealous representation. The new rules in 1969 proclaimed that lawyers have an affirmative duty to represent their clients zealously, to be zealous advocates. Uh, the rules don't define zealous, but in the dictionary, it's fervent partisanship on behalf of clients. And so the, um, we started to see lawyers in 1969 when these rules were adopted and people study these rules to uh, pass the bar exam so they can obtain a license to practice. Uh, they study the rules in educate, uh, ethics classes in law school. And by sometime in the 1970s, after a few years, that concept took root. And the focus of lawyers, or the definition of a lawyer's proper role, was to be a zealous, fervent partisan on behalf of their clients. And so we can see why the legal profession and the practice of law has become more contentious, why there's more incivility, and that sort of thing. That's the first thing that happened. Uh, then in the early 1970s, we had Watergate. And I devoted a chapter in my book, Chapter 5, to a concise history of what happened uh, in Watergate when a number of lawyers engaged in a conspiracy to affect the outcome of the 19... 72 presidential election. And then when they were caught, they, they were in the people who basically broke into the uh, Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Hotel were caught. A number of lawyers orchestrated a, a enormous cover-up and engaged in, in just incredible ethical and in some cases criminal behavior. Uh, a number of lawyers were found guilty or, or pled guilty and served time in prison. And so this was widely publicized in the early to mid-1970s. There were almost two years of uh, publicity with, with hearings. There were Senate hearings. Uh, there was a special prosecutor. Uh, and finally, President Nixon, himself a lawyer, uh, resigned. And the public became aware of uh, a number of lawyers breaking the law and engaging in some really outrageous behavior in order to achieved the goal of getting President Nixon reelected in 1972. The next thing that happened was that in 1977, the United States Supreme Court uh, decided a case, the uh, name of the case is Bates versus State Bar of Arizona, uh, where the court basically ended the ban on lawyer advertising. It used to be that lawyer advertising was considered unseemly, if not unethical, and lawyers are expected to get business by uh, 
participating in community service activities, building their reputation, getting referrals from happy clients, and that sort of thing. Well, starting in 1977, lawyers, uh, the Supreme Court decided that lawyers have the right under the First Amendment to engage in commercial speech and advertise their services. And now we see advertisements for lawyer services all over the place. We see billboards, we see uh, the back covers of telephone books, uh, newspapers, uh, television ads, uh, encouraging people to call an 800 number typically to consult with, uh, with a lawyer about uh, a, a particular issue. I'd like to take a sidebar right now, if sure. I may. And I want to jump from this book that we're discussing, uh, Transforming the Practice of Law, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession by John Allison, available on Amazon. I want to jump from that book to your book, Choosing Your Lawyer, An Insider's Practical Guide to Making a Really Good Choice. And here's why I want to jump. What should the public think when they're driving down the highway and they see a billboard and there's a picture of a lawyer and it says, call me if you have an accident or something like that? Is, what, what, how should we take it? And when we pick up, as you say, the phone book and there's a whole page on the back of the phone book and there's a picture of a lawyer. I, uh, what, tell us something about that. Is there, is there a rule of thumb about such uh, people and practice? I, I can tell by my voice that I'm a little prejudiced. Uh, the rule of thumb, I think, should be that uh, the only thing that the advertisement means is that the lawyer is spending a lot of money on advertising. It doesn't mean the lawyer is good. It doesn't mean the lawyer is better, more, more effective than lawyers who don't advertise. It just simply means that the lawyer is spending a lot of money on advertising. Does, should it mean that people should be suspicious at all when they see that level of advertising or not? In my opinion, I, I'm not, saying that because and now you hear it in my voice. I'm a little skeptical, I'm, and I don't know. Maybe it's my age or my upbringing, because we weren't allowed. I think we're some, in my profession. We're not allowed to advertise. Yes, you know that. And and when my dad, who was a dental surgeon, came to California for the first time, he just about freaked out when he saw dentists advertising out here. Right? Yes. He didn't know what that was, and it, he thought it was it was shocking. But so. I mean, how is it for you uh, when you see lawyers up there personally and you see a billboard, this giant billboard, call me if you have an accident? Well, personally, I would not call that lawyer. Uh, but I don't think it, it's necessarily a negative. I think I consider it to be a neutral fact. And I think that the steps that I've recommended in my book, Choosing Your Lawyer, for finding a really good lawyer, uh, it basically overlook that. I mean, it doesn't... It, 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 it's not a positive. I don't think it's necessarily a negative. But it's something we do that's in our face. I it, mean, we do have to deal with it because the ads are large. They're yes. on television now from time to time, right? Well, the disservice, I will have this, uh, this comment about the, the effect of those ads that can have, uh, it can really have a disservice to clients or potential clients. Let me give you some examples. We've all seen ads, you know, if you've had this medical implant or this medical device, Call this 800 number because the FDA's done such and such, or uh, you might be entitled to a lot of money, uh, that type of thing. Mesothelioma, I hear it on television it's, it's all, all the time. It's all over the... It's, it is. National advertising. National advertising, right. And so the, um, the difficulty or the downside with an ad that suggests that people who have a medical device call an 800 number is that a person who has that medical device starts to get worried. I would get worried if I saw that, you know, I had some uh, uh, implant or some, you know, pelvic mesh or something that, that uh, um, 
lawyers are, are trying to advertise and attract clients because there's a problem with them, I'm going to worry about it. And before I saw the ad, I was probably feeling fine. And, and now I'm concerned because I have a medical device that some lawyers are claiming uh, is defective and it's in my body and I don't know what to do. That's an astute point. It's a kind of hypnosis effect, isn't it? Well, it is. And it, it, it's causing anxiety where anxiety really doesn't, uh -huh. is, is not a positive thing. It actually adding to people's stress. The, uh, well, the, I, t I took you away to the choosing the lawyer because we talk a little bit. I thought it would be yeah. interesting about the billboard. But now we're going to come back to okay. your book. Before we do, I want to say that uh, this you're listening to uh, John Allison. He's a lawyer who's written uh, two great books, Transforming the Practice of Law, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession, and Choosing Your Lawyer. And uh, we're interviewing him here today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. So, John... You, you read these reports, you see that, the, that your profession is suffering, uh, there's Watergate, and then there's all kinds of exposés about your profession, and... There's advertising, and then there's the commercialization of the practice of law, where money becomes the goal. And money trumps, in a lot of situations, uh, with, with money can trump client service. And... Uh, let me just give a couple of examples that have happened over the last 20 years. I would pinpoint over the last 20 years. There's been a tremendous increase in the size of law firms. To support a law firm, you know, it has a lot of lawyers and a lot of overhead. Lawyers have to generate substantial fees just to keep the operation going. In addition, in the last several years, there's been a, uh, a competition among lawyers. Lawyers are very competitive. Uh, competition among lawyers uh, over the average profits per partner in their law firm. So there's a pressure on lawyers to make a lot of money. The average, in, in the larger firms, the average profits per partner uh, are somewhere between half a million dollars and two million dollars a year, which is a lot of money. All that money is generated by legal fees, which comes from billing clients for hours. So a law student fresh out of law school who joins a law firm can be faced, it depends on the law firm, but can be faced, particularly in larger firms, with an expectation that they bill 2,000 hours, 2,200 hours a year. That's just to keep their job. If they want to get a bonus, they have to bill more. Let me elaborate for our listeners on yeah. what that number means. John just said that, the, that they, they need to bill 2,000 hours. There are 2,080 hours in a full year of work, namely 40 hours a week times 52 weeks. Mm -hmm. So in order to bill 2,000 hours, that means they would have to bill 40 hours a week every single week of the year, and that doesn't account for their administrative time, phone time, tell us all the other kinds of time, writing up th things that they can't bill for, etc., etc. So we're talking about a billable 40-hour week, plus how many more hours do they have to put in to back up that billable 40-hour week? Probably 25 to 30% on top. So it's not billable, and, and they have to, they have to uh, attend continuing education programs to maintain their law license. So uh, we're talking about a, at least a 60-hour 
work week. At least a 60-hour work At least. week. Not counting, not counting time for lunch, breaks, sick days, vacations. Right, 60 hours a week. Week in, week out. And that, that's, that's a cause of stress. Uh, there, there are many... That's got to be a cause of stress uh, on their families. It may or may not be a cause of stress on the individual person because if they love their work, and people can be that way, as we all know, you can love your work so much that you're happy to do it 60 hours a week or 70 or 80 hours a week. And maybe, from my perspective, I might say the person's out of balance because I don't know if there's a time for them to really be exercising and doing a little meditation, a little stretching, you know, taking care of the physical and mental body. But they might love it. But the, the effect on their families must be dramatic and then on their children. Oh, it is dramatic. It is dramatic. There's a, uh, a lawyer who became a uh, psychotherapist, Benjamin Sells, has written a couple of books about this. And according to him, 25% of lawyers complain that they have difficulty maintaining personal relationships. And that's not surprising because... Only 25% of lawyers complain about having difficulty with personal relationships? Well, so that's, that's what, that's what no, Benjamin well, says. Well, that that's tells me view. something. In other words, yeah. the other 75% are so out of it that they don't, excuse me to denigrate your profession, that they don't realize that, they're, that, that by working 60 or 70, 80 hours a week, they're going to be, they have, de facto, they're having trouble with their personal relationships. A lot of trouble in their personal uh, lives. The, the kids yeah. could write them, send them emails in order to correspond with them. Wow, that's not an that's not an exaggeration. No, Richard. I didn't mean, I mean it. it I meant it tongue in cheek, but it was real. And so, I mean, I've I've heard stories, and you can see lawyers who um, are walking down the street on their uh, smartphone or their iPhones, right. sending texts, checking messages, and, and and that sort of thing, not even taking a break during the day because they're under so much pressure to bill time, and they're billing time to clients. So they're they're a number of things that clients can do to protect themselves from being charged unreasonable fees. And I've covered that in my book, Choosing Your Lawyer. But let me just, let me just mention a couple other things that, that have gone on. Uh, transforming the practice of law contains a number of examples about what can happen when zealous advocacy or zealous representation, which is the Bar Association's uh, definition of a lawyer's role in 1969, the American Bar Association's definition, uh, when lawyers get carried away and do things that cross the ethical line or even engage in criminal behavior because they're so narrow-mindedly focused on being a partisan for their clients that they lose sight of their own morality. There, there are examples in, uh, pro among prosecutors. Uh, there are examples of business lawyers engaging in fraudulent uh, transactions on behalf of their clients. Uh, examples of lawyers in civil cases uh, hiding evidence, concealing evidence, and that sort of thing because they think that their job is to be zealous advocates on behalf of their clients and if they win. can get away with something, and to win. 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 win, right? Win. And so winning and making money has become more important in the, to the profession as a whole. Now, not all lawyers by any means, but winning and making money has become more important than preserving our system of justice and serving the best interests of our clients. There are countless instances of lawyers who bill clients to generate billings when the client would be happy just to resolve their dispute early, quickly, 
and, and not engaged in a lengthy litigation process, which is largely driving people apart, making people angrier at each other, and generating fees for the lawyers. It's actually against the legal profession's financial interests to settle a case, isn't it? It can be, yes, it can be. Because at minimum, if they don't settle a case, they make more money by having more billable hours because the case is going on. If they're billing, if they're charging by the hour, that's correct, yes. So on that score alone, they're in direct conflict with the people they represent. That can happen, and it does happen. Not universally, Richard, but it does happen. Am I saying it too strongly, John? I no, mean, you're how, not. How can, how can they not be in conflict with their client if, if financially, that is, only yes. on that score, if not morally, but financially, if the longer the case goes on, the more they make. The faster they settle the case, the less they make. That Settling fast is good for the client. Keeping it going is good for the lawyer. Where am I mistaken? You're not mistaken. And, and it's the reason why clients need to be uh, proactive in interviewing lawyers, hiring lawyers, working with their lawyers, staying on top of their cases, and not just turning something over to the lawyers. That's and, we're gonna, you know, that's what we're going to get to in another okay. interview, I think, because we've got so much to do on your first book today. And By the way, if you're listening to this, I know it's probably sounding somewhat discouraging. I mean, John's telling a big truth here, isn't he? He's telling us that... His profession has difficulty. He's having some internal difficulty that some of it has to do with competition. A lot of it has to do with money. Some of it has to do with morality. These are very complicated issues. He's bringing this out into the light. But we're going to be getting to his solutions. You may have to stay tuned till next time and hear it. Remember those when you were a kid? Next week we'll bring you the, uh, the other side of the story. And you may have to because there's a lot here. I want you to know, and as an aside here, that this is going to be a series that's going to go on. We're going to bring David Eister back, I hope. David, if you're listening, uh, the D district attorney of, uh, of Mendocino County, I'd like to get a judge on and maybe the county council, and we're going to really get into the legal profession so we can understand it, if we can help do something about it, you know, to cooperate. So you're reading these things, you're researching these, these, these problems and so on, and then you start writing about it. Pick us up from there. Yes, and let me mention one other thing, Richard. That Certainly. I, it, this all really begins in law school, and I think it's... It might be helpful to step back and consider the type of legal education that lawyers have received. Uh, lawyers typically they have their college degree in any number of different subjects. It could be a science science subject. Uh, it can be uh, you know, like maybe there are history majors, English majors, political science majors, uh, chemistry majors. It, it, it really doesn't matter. And they come to law school, and they spend typically three years, sometimes four years, learning how to think like a lawyer. That's the primary focus of legal education. And so the way the law is taught, law students learn a unique form of logical analysis. That, and they also learn that the emotions and, and uh, spiritual considerations, uh, issues that are of concern, deep concern, to most people are simply not relevant to a proper legal analysis. And so 
law students basically are trained to split off part part of their personality in order to succeed in in law school and you know to do well and get the grades that put them in a position to get good jobs and they get out of school and that, that sort of thing. And the part that they split off we refer to as em the emotions. The emotions, uh, yes. And so that's another reason why it's very important for, for potential clients, somebody who's looking to hire a lawyer, to be aware of the nature of legal education and the limitations that puts on some lawyers and, and, and work hard to find lawyers who are willing to listen, be empathetic, uh, to uh, deal with clients' emotions and feelings about what they're experiencing when they have a legal problem, uh, the, and explain what impact that may or may not have on the outcome of their dispute, if it's a dispute that the lawyer is being consulted about. And, and uh, really, uh, really important, it's really important for clients to uh, do... Uh, due diligence and check out lawyers before deciding which lawyer they want to hire and that sort of thing. And this is, this is covered in my other book, Choosing Your Lawyer. So what we're saying here is we've got a, an interaction between two or more people where the client has both a, uh, a reason but also has a lot of feelings about it, whether it's they're being prosecuted for criminal or whether it's a civil case and they're being sued or they're suing somebody or whether they're in trouble because they got a DUI or something like that, but they've got both, there's the reason and then there's the emotion. Whereas from, for the person that's helping them, the professional, reason has to take much higher priority. It's the, one of the credos, I believe, of the law is reason before emotion. Right, that we're going to reason this out. We're not going to be, you know, screaming it out or, or feeling it out. Correct. Well, that's correct. At the same time, I think it's important for clients to be represented by lawyers who understand how the client is experiencing their legal problem. Yeah. And it's not uh, just to give you an example. Uh, let's say a personal injury case. You're in a car accident, and the elements of a cause of action for negligence, if you want to sue for damages. Uh, are the existence of a duty to the person who's injured. So did the other driver have a duty to the person who was injured? Was the duty breached? Was the breach of duty a proximate legal direct cause of damages and what damages are compensable? And so the law students learn this in their basic uh, torts is the name of the class, the torts class. And uh, they apply that, they read appellate court decisions that illustrate uh, how each one of those elements might play out in a particular case. The client, on the other hand, is concerned about how am I going to pay my medical bills? Who's going to take, my take care of my family when I'm out of work for six months recovering, going through physical therapy? And am I going to lose my house because I can't make my mortgage payments? And those type of things. And if a lawyer doesn't deal with the whole, doesn't take a holistic approach to the client's situation and simply deals with the legal issue, that's only part of what the, law, the client's experiencing. And it might not be the most important thing from the standpoint of the client. Now, the client doesn't necessarily want to win the case. The client wants to, I mean, of course the clients like to win, but the client doesn't necessarily, that's not number one. The client wants to make sure that they're not going to lose their house, their family's going to get taken care of, they're going to have enough money to pay their medical bills and get treatment and rehabilitation without having to go through bankruptcy. 
and 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 lawyers need to uh, step back and help the whole client, help the client, not just focus on the legal issue, but focus on the client. Some lawyers are really good at doing that. A number of lawyers are not. So tra uh, focusing on the whole client sounds like uh, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about transforming the soul of the legal profession, that the soul of the profession has to change in order for the profession to be willing to focus on the client and not just the facts of the case. How do you do that? It start, again, it begins in law school. In law school. And I've made some specific recommendations for changes in legal education. There are subjects that could be taught that are not currently taught, communications, collaboration, leadership, and things like that. Some people in the profession refer to those as soft skills, which some lawyers are very good at. <laughs> A number of lawyers aren't, uh, because they've been they've been taught that's not relevant. They're under so much pressure to build time that they and they haven't developed the skills. So law school could teach that. Law school could take a different approach to teaching ethics. Right now, ethics is typically a one quarter or one semester class. Uh, sometimes it's a two quarter class which is focused on the rules of professional conduct, the ABA's model rules. People are not taught how to be ethical lawyers, ethical people. They're taught about the rules. You know, it's like, it's like the rules of the road. Learning the rules of the road doesn't necessarily make a person a careful driver. Studying the ethical rules doesn't necessarily make a lawyer an ethical lawyer. But, so, but having this huge pressure to make money and this huge pressure to bill, that sounds like it's antithetical to what you're proposing. That's where I think lawyers and clients come in because lawyers have important choices to make about where they want to practice and how they want to practice. And so lawyers who take personal responsibility for their career choices and decide what kind of professional life they want to have will choose certain environments in which to practice and will avoid the environments where billable hours is primary. Clients also, client, lawyers, the legal profession listens to clients. And so as clients make choices about the lawyers they hire and insist that lawyers listen, are loyal, are good communicators, are ethical professionals, charge reasonable fees, and refuse to hire lawyers or, or decline to hire lawyers that uh, are needlessly expensive or who don't t put forth the effort to understand the client's overall objectives, which may not be winning the case. It might just be to get the case over with so they can get on with their business or their personal life. This sounds like a very difficult problem, John, very difficult. Uh, getting lawyers to either charge reasonable fees or to work fewer than 40 billable hours a week, it sounds like a task that's similar to getting Congress to give up some of their largesse uh, voluntarily. And, and we know that they don't do that. I, I, we live in such a materialistic culture with, yes. with, where the dollar is, uh, is, uh, is almighty. I don't know how we can turn this around, where we need, a, we need some light here, some, 
some, some change, some kind of different way of thinking about the whole thing. Because the, um, that one piece of information alone is, is really dramatic, and it's a very real one. I've worked, I've consulted with law firms for many years, and I, and I know everything you're saying is accurate, that there is that the tremendous pressure to actually bill 2,000 hours a year. It's, it's, a, it's a dramatic number. So I give examples in my book, Richard, of what I would call billing abuses. And it's, it's well known. Uh, they don't result in disciplinary action because of the way the disciplinary process works in most states and because clients typically don't complain or they don't understand the subtleties of what constitutes a reasonable fee and what, what does not. And so uh, people, some lawyers who are under pressure to generate billings will overwork files, prolong matters, so they can keep on billing, maybe do a little bit more discovery, take a few more depositions and so forth before you're sitting down and talking settlement with the other side. And if, if clients are aware of how the generation of fees can be abused and are well informed, they can take steps to make choices on which lawyers they hire and to interject themselves and raise questions if they're unhappy or... Uh, don't understand what's why a case is taking as long as it is taking, uh, or why they're getting periodic bills from the law firm or the lawyer that seem uh, that seem to be out of line. You know, in the medical profession, uh, we, what we have uh, advocated for are advocates. Yes. Something called patient advocates, yes. where a family member goes to the hospital with the patient, a family member goes to the doctor uh, with the patient. Uh, and more and more people are doing this. When they go to see the doctor, they're bringing someone with them, yes. recognizing that when we're sitting in a doctor's office, there's a good chance we have a certain amount of anxiety or just plain nervousness about what we're going to find out, about what we don't know that we're going to hear about, uh, something you know, possibly not good that's going to happen, not yes. going in with that positive attitude that we talked about earlier in yes. the program. And so when we're in that condition of heightened emotion, we don't necessarily think of things that are in our best interest in terms of good questions to ask, yes. in terms of listening carefully. So we bring in an advocate, and, and this is a, a, an excellent thing to do, which I, which I highly recommend. And certainly when we're in the hospital, to have people with us so that they listen in on what's going on. I myself, with everything I know about all this, had this happen to me not that many years ago, John. I went to Stanford Medical uh, Hospital, and I had an excellent surgery but the nurse then completely forgot a transfusion. Oh. And so I was without blood for uh, quite a, for too long a period of time. I mean, so, so long a period of time that I got out of the hospital and I went home and a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Howard Levine, who's been on this program, uh, came over to visit me and he looked at me and the first thing he said is, what are you doing out of the hospital, right? If I had an advocate, they would have noticed that. Yes. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that in the legal profession? How would you recommend that people have what we might call legal advocates to help them? There's a lot that people can do for themselves. And I've outlined this in, in my book, Choosing Your Lawyer. They can have a friend or a family member come with them. Uh, there's a there, there's an issue, it depends on the nature of their, of their legal problem. 
because there's a attorney-client privilege. Let, let me just back up and talk about the attorney-client privilege a little bit. The attorney-client privilege protects from disclosure virtually anything a client tells his or her lawyer. If a third party is present when highly sensitive information is discussed, there's no attorney-client privilege with respect to the third person. And so there, there could be a risk, unless it's a spouse. Um, so if, if, you know, if a person went to see a lawyer, bring your spouse along. So what you're saying is the attorney-client privilege isn't lost on the attorney, even if there's a, another person in the room in addition to the client. The attorney can't go gabbing around just because there was a third person. The, the privilege is broken because that third person might go and talk about what went on in the meeting. Is or that might correct? Be, or might be subpoenaed. Or might even be subpoenaed. And compelled to talk, yes. Oh, yes. oh that brings another whole wrinkle into it, doesn't yes, it? it? It does. So, and they would be compelled to talk. They'd have to say what they heard during this confidential yes. meeting. In most states, yes. Yes. That's a sticky wicket. Well, it is. And so it's, it's important to make sure that whoever else was participating in the meeting with the lawyer would be within what, what's considered to be the zone of privilege. So, uh, if, if, for example, a company, if uh, a company is talking to a lawyer and let's say a um, legal professional in the company, somebody in the legal department is interviewing a lawyer, if somebody else in the legal department comes along or if one of the executives comes along, uh, they would be considered to be within the zone of the privilege, and so that risk would not apply. But if you were going to hire a lawyer and you asked Mike to come along just, just to sit in and give you advice on what he thought and to maybe coach you and remind you about questions to ask and that type of thing, he could probably be subpoenaed. In most, oh, in most is, states. This is very important information because I was talking before about an advocate similar to a, a person, a patient advocate. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't apply here. We need a whole other system. You're saying one thing we can do is we can bring a spouse in because they can't be forced to testify against their, a, husband. Against right. their own husband They're, or against their own, own wife. wife right. right. So if you're listening to this, folks, that's the word. The bottom line here is if you bring somebody in, it better be a spouse. What else can a person do to protect themselves? We've got a whole list of things that you're going to be talking about that people should be looking out for. Because remember, today, folks, it's uh, it's more. This program has been about a lot about diagnosis. These are the problems with the legal profession. We're going to have to have another whole program on what to do about it, and most importantly, for you listening, how to protect yourselves, how to choose a lawyer, what kind of things to look for, what are the red flags, and you're going to also help us, John, teach us how to quit, how to say to a professional who's called a lawyer, I don't want to work with you, yes. or I don't, I, I'm out of here. Uh, you, you mentioned that usually the first session with a lawyer is without fee. Yes. Is, is that common? Can you talk more, a little bit more about that so people know? Uh, it is common. It's common that uh, lawyers expect to have to explain how they would uh, approach legal matter to see whether or not there's mutual rapport uh, one of the reasons that I recommended an interview with a lawyer before deciding to hire one is to see if there's good chemistry between the client and the lawyer. The lawyer is doing the same thing because there's some clients that some lawyers just don't want to represent. 
And can, a, can a client ask a lawyer on the phone before they even meet with them what their fee is? Oh, absolutely. They can. Yes, they should. And they should. They yes. shouldn't be afraid to say on the phone before, before they even come in for the, quote, free consultation, what is your fee? Exactly. They should not re be reluctant at all. Are there any other questions you recommend a person ask on the telephone before they even go for the, quote, free consultation? Because maybe they don't even want to go for the free consultation if they hear things on the phone that say, hey, I don't, I don't even go for that because it, this is already not going to happen. I think that talking to a lawyer that a client is thinking about maybe hiring or interviewing um, can get, generate a lot of information by how the lawyer handles himself or herself on the phone. Uh, questions about the lawyer's experience, the types of legal matters they've handled, whether or not they've handled matters similar to the client's legal problem, and, and a frank discussion about fees or questions about fees. And uh, to get some indication of how the lawyer is going to keep the client informed as the matter progresses. Those are all important things to ask. And let me just add one final thing, since I see that we're almost out of time. We are. I want to emphasize that there are a lot of good lawyers out there. Because we're talking the about diagnosis today doesn't yes. mean there aren't a lot of good ones there out there. There are a lot there. of really good lawyers out there, and the challenge for clients is to find them. Okay, folks, we're going to wrap up the interview now. We've been interviewing John Allison about his books, Transforming the Practice of Law, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession, and his other book, Choosing Your Lawyer, an insider's practical guide to making a really good choice. You can find both of these books on Amazon. Archives of this program you'll be able to find at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, so you can listen to it at your leisure. There's also an archive on the KZYX website on Jukebox. Um, thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is, work, is, worth, is worth working hard for. It just doesn't come automatically. It's worth working hard for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.